Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford, or whoa, Angelina whoa, Stanford whoa. and Tim McIntosh, or whichever you choose. Dear, we'll allow the audience to put whoever put whomever first they wish. But then it becomes a popularity contest, and I don't know if any of us want that. Um, either way, you know what happens. My name comes first because I say, hi, I'm David Kern. <laughs> well done. <laughs> now we know why you made yourself the host of the show. I see. Well, only in as much as I said, hey, guys, you want to do a podcast? <laughs> Tim, and are like, <laughs> Tim and I are just like, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about books by ourselves and no one will ever hear, and, but we'll have fun. <laughs> and, and of the three of us, I'm probably the only one who you can count on to be anywhere on time. Hey, I'm always here no, on time. I, I, you're supposed to say to me, you were late today. Oh, that's right. You were. Yeah, I was five minutes late. because I was, I was literally the only one on the thing. I should have just done the podcast by myself, done voices for each of you, because I know how this goes. David, interesting. Tim, can I just rabbit trail here for a minute? <laughs> one time in 1972. <laughs> I w- I, you could have done that all afternoon, and it could have been the best thing ever, but you don't know how to record it, so it probably would have ah. been it probably would have been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, how's it going? Uh, it's it's you know today's just going to be one of those days. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, got to grind today. <laughs> okay. Well, do you want to say anything else? Uh oh, gosh, do I want to say? Better anything not, else? huh? Wow, <laughs> no, wow, I don't. It's no, it's nothing. It's nothing like particularly interesting. It's just detritus you know it's just boring complications it's not exciting complications yeah. i'm sorry let me just pull up my amazon app here and just one one click you a gift basket 24 hours <laughs> boom <laughs> we'll seem like you need to pick me up well i don't know like uh, some karmic mccarthy novels <laughs> is that really a pick me up i don't know if that's really a gift basket <laughs> no here's the issue i would love that as a gift basket what I lack is the time to read the Cormac McCarthy novel if it, if it arrived. That's what – can you – does Amazon do that? Does Amazon gift basket people time from their schedule? You know, if they don't, they should. They're missing out on a golden opportunity here. My guess, is, my guess is it's difficult for them to gift through time, but they may be able to take something else in your life away. <laughs> oh, what would that be? I don't know. I'm sure there's something. That's for you and Amazon to work out together. No, that's not for me actually, to say. Actually, I think I think Amazon does do that. But when you click on it, then immediately you get a note from your employer that you're fired, and you're like, "Now I have so much time." Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I see that you've been shopping today, Tim. <laughs> yeah, right. We're gonna have to put you on a indefinite hiatus. Yes. Might we also hiatus. recommend? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, we are here to talk about books. We are here to talk about Flannery O'Connor. This is our last conversation of a Flannery O'Connor story. Of course, next week we are going to do a Q&A episode. So please send your questions in via the Facebook group. Hey, do you say via or via? I say via. I do too. Okay, so please send in your questions via <laughs> Facebook. Like Tim and I are some kind of experts here. The consensus is via. <laughs> you guys talk good. Um, so <laughs> so um, send in your questions. Yeah, send your questions in by uh, via the Facebook uh, group. Hashtag them, David. Yeah, has to, we'll, we'll just say hashtag close reads Q&A. And uh, let's do an ampersand. Yeah, I was going to say, let's do, let's do an ampersand. Yeah, it just looks better. And uh, so, so hashtag close reads Q ampersand A. Send in your questions that way. Um, actually, you know what? I have a better idea. Scratch all that. Maybe I'll even take this out of the podcast, but probably not. Um, let's just, I will post, I'll pin a, a post at the top of the page. Oh, that's a good idea. And then everyone can just submit their questions below that. So it's just one place where we can. Um, we could just go to get all the questions. As I said, I'm going to try to to hopefully select a question from each story and then a couple that are more general. And we'll do a few uh, in-depth questions and then we'll do a couple rapid-fire ones. So if you have questions that you think are more rapid-fire for us, we'd love to have those as well. Um, just ones that we can answer a little more quickly. you know. And then we'll try to, like I said, we'll try to cover as many in-depth as we can in, a, in about an hour. So that's next week. Uh, the next week after that, we are going to spend an episode on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as promised, because it won the uh, the, the Great Books bracket that we did this spring, the Children's Lit bracket. So we're going to spend an, an hour talking about why that's such a great book and uh, what it means to each of us in our in our lives and nostalgia, uh, from a nostalgia factor, as well as just, you know, as adults. Um, and then why it's last and why it's lasted for a while. So, um, David, are we hoping that both the podcast participants and the kind of podcast book club, the listeners will have read the line, the witch in the wardrobe in a week, or are we just kind of thinking, Oh, we're just going to kind of like, we're going to be doing this largely from our memories of the book. Um, you can read it if you like, but what I want to talk about is like big picture stuff. Like it won a bracket. And so therefore it's indicative of its quality, um, you know quality as a story but also there's something in it that um speaks to you know there's a nostalgia factor to it there's something Mm -hmm. big picture going on and i really want to Mm -hmm. focus on that for the conversation and if that takes us into the specifics of the book that's great if you want to read it you can but i suspect many of our readers will either have read it uh at some point in their life or um have listened to an audio book or an audio drama or seen the play or any number of things uh that should should make it um uh, relatable if, if, mm-hmm. we, if we if we care about such things um and then the week after that we are going to start our next book and uh we're going to make the announcement on that so so tim uh do the do your gold drum roll for us would you okay you ready i'm ready mm-hmm. all right start, coming up next on close reads we are going to read together bride's head revisited by evelyn wall tim and angelina uh, uh <laughs> You that was really good feigning of surprise there. You are a true oh, so good, Tim. You are a true actor. Tim, have you ever read have you ever read you're a thespian of the highest order. Have you ever read uh Evelyn Waugh? Or Brideshead? I, yes I have. I've read Brideshead Revisited. And I have to say I read it lo- I mean, it's always been kind of in my queue. I have cues that are Your perpetual queue? 
my perpetual cue, not my immediate cue. I've got a list of, you know, like always, there are two or three immediate cue books that I know I've got to get to these in the next two months, if not sooner. And then there's the perpetual cue of books. Like for the longest time, War and Peace was in my perpetual cue. Because who wants to actually tackle War and Peace? <laughs> and then you just took it out of your perpetual cue because if you started reading it, you'd be reading it perpetually. <laughs> That's right. No, I That's actually. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> I actually knuckled down and read it a few summers ago. And oh boy, that book. So good. Is not a book for this show, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, yeah, it's we would have to dedicate a year to it, minimum. A decade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready. I am not ready to make that commitment yet. So we're just going to hold off on that one. Uh, but Angelina, have you read Brad Said Revisited before? I have, but a long time ago when I was in graduate school. So Tim, you, you're similar then? You did read it, but it's been a while? No, it's been very recently. It's probably been two oh. years. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm more like 20 years, so I, I can't wait to reread it. It has been on my perpetual queue of things I'd like to reread. Uh, yeah, Broadside is incredible. Um, I, I think there's a pretty easy case to be made that it is one of the most important novels of the 20th century um, and at least one of the most important novels by a Christian of the 20th century, and it's definitely up there with with uh, the works of O'Connor and... Um, Lewis and um, Tolkien, I, I think, as far as its importance and the things that it's saying. Um, so we're going to read that together. And this is what I think I, I want to do. Um, given that that's a f- still a few weeks away, I, l- let's let's go ahead and say we're going to read through chapter three. In my edition, that is about 75 pages. There is a prologue, which you have to read. It's not one of those prologues which you can be like, eh, and skip. Um, hmm. it, it's actually part of the narrative. So uh, let's read the prologue, chapters one, two, and three, and that gets us through like page seventy-five, at least in my edition. Um, and then that gives us a really good intro and, and a good chance to kind of meet the characters, discuss the characters, discuss where things have been set up, and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, we can read it. You know, the chapters are longer. It's not. It's not. They're not like ten, fifteen pages. Uh, it's not like Pride and Prejudice. So then maybe we'll read it a chapter or two at a time, and we will be able to really dive into each of those chapters and the latter half of the book is where we're going to want to take our time. So the beginning part, as it sets things up, I think will give us a lot to, to, to kind of uh, set the stage with. Sound good. That sounds great that sounds to me. Great. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just say this in passing the mini series that I suppose. It was oh, the it's BBC incredible. It. It's really I good. I've been wanting to see that. Come on, Netflix, get with it. I got to pay for that. It's too much. Isn't it David to try to do both at the same time it's just it's too much isn't it uh the only problem is i don't know how to break it out you know so what i would say is people sh- at the end of when, when we finish it we could do an episode where everybody can as we're watching feel free to watch to as we're reading feel free to watch it and then if, when we're finished reading it we can go back and do an episode on the bbc miniseries and it's and the job it does adapting it and where we agree and disagree and like what they did and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So yeah. we could do that after towards the end. We can do a and a episode and that if we want to, if people are interested yeah, that in that. Promising. It's one of the best, if not the best, miniseries of all time. Uh, by yeah. almost, according to most metrics, like you'll see it on almost every series. Well, it's got Jeremy Irons. That's enough to get me to watch it yep. right there. Yeah, Jeremy Irons plays the main guy. Um, and then also there was a there was a, a movie that came out recently with Emma Thompson, Ben Whishaw, um, a couple other people. Um, and it's incomplete because it it 
it just glosses over too much that's important. Too much of the mm. faith-based stuff, I think, it glosses over too mm. quickly. Um, and it's really a book about conversion that it's in a, in a lot of ways. And so it'll be an interesting companion piece, I think, to go along with uh, O'Connor. Um, yes. and it's very British. It's not like, you know, it's not an American Southern novel. It's a 19, you know, pre, pre-World War II um, not, a British book about another book that has to do with the aristocracy a little bit. Uh, but it's a really amazing book. And, and if the beginning chapters, I'm just going to warn you for some people, the beginning chapter and the prologue might be a little bit um, challenging because it's, it's setting the stage for a lot of drama and there's just a lot of characters and there's, you know, so I've heard some people don't get through the first bit, but um, I please continue. You know, hopefully, hopefully you'll get through that because it is worth it in the end. Do you agree with that, Tim? That the beginning's a little bit of a that. slog. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit of a slog. So that's why I'm kind of saying let's read the whole of those first three chapters because once the drama really gets going, it really gets going. That's a good um, suggestion. And that way, it gives people three weeks to go ahead and read through that, and and uh, you know, and, you know, hopefully it makes it a little bit more leisurely than trying to to do that all at one time in in one week. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I think we saw. I saw there was a lot of feedback. F- uh, positive feedback for it on the, in the Facebook group. Um, so it seems like a good time to do that. I, for me, it's it's also a good summertime read. There's a lot of like people driving out and having picnics in the summertime and the stuff like that. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I think it's a good summer book. Um, but hey, before we get into this discussion of O'Connor, we do need to say a quick word from our friends over at Roman Roads. Uh, as you know, if you've been listening to this show, they are publishers of cl- classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops. And they're back with another giveaway for you uh, listeners. Each episode uh, here in April and May, they're giving away one of their 16 units from West Callahan's Old Western Culture series, which is a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western civilization. It's got workbooks, discussion questions, readers, all that. And Wes draws from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of Western civilization, integrating history, lit, theology, politics, philosophy, and much, much more. So here's how to enter the giveaway if you don't if you haven't already done this, um, then all you got to do is head over to the place on our Facebook page where this episode is posted. And in the comments under it, uh, just leave a note which says which unit of the Old Western Culture series you would choose if you win. So head over to RomanRoadsMedia.com to browse their you know their catalog and choose the one that you would like. So they have an ancient, you know, ancient, uh, an ancient lit one, I guess, a medieval lit one. Um, you know, anything you can think of. So choose one of those comments on it. And they have, you know, they will choose a winner three days after the, uh, the posting. So thanks to Roman Rhodes for making this possible. Um, we're really thankful to be partnering with them and, um, you know, our sponsors really do go a long way towards making our, these shows possible, especially for us being able to keep all of this podcast content free. So uh, please do Absolutely. check them out and learn more about them. And they're really, really great guys. And, and then if you're coming to our conference in, in the summertime, uh, make sure that you actually in May and in July, they're coming to both. Uh, make sure you say hello and browse their selection there and, you know, take them out for lunch or something. Daniel and David Fukushan and their whole crew over there. are Great, great guys. So they are great guys. Okay, let's talk about Judgment Day. So I posted yesterday on the Facebook group that that we were going to be talking about this today and that this is one of, if not the most complicated story, in my opinion, that O'Connor does. Um, Angelina, you told me before we got on that, you know, well, before we hit the record button, that um, you had never read this before and you were kind of like taken aback by it in in a sense. I don't know if you used you didn't use those words, but that's kind of the gist of what I got from you. Is that, uh, is that an accurate uh, representation of how you were feeling? 
You're, were you feeling a backed? <laughs> I was feeling a backed, David. Yeah. I backed right into a corner. <laughs> right, right into a stairwell. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Careful, careful. I mean, it's still her, right? It wasn't like I'm like, you know, did she have a breakdown? But it, it's it's more, it's just, it's it is, it's unfinished. It's definitely, yeah. like, this is like a first draft or, you know, it's just, it's an early draft. And, and so I yeah. kind of felt like the scenes were almost placeholders that she intended to come back and tighten up. Yeah. So as we said before, uh, I think we mentioned it last week, this was the story that the last story she wrote. Um, and it's been said that it's, that it's unfinished. Um, I do know that it's not unfinished in the sense that it's not a whole narrative arc. So she did Mm -hmm. finish the narrative. She had no intention whatsoever of changing the ending is my understanding. And she did send the, um, she did send it to her editor, Robert Giraud, uh, who was her longtime editor and the one that kind of gave her her break with Farrar, Strauss and Giraud. And, Mm -hmm. uh, it was mailed to him um, about a month before she died. Um, and it was a rewrite, as Tim mentioned in our last episode, of The Geranium, which was her first published story. Um, and it's, that's a very flawed story, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, it, was a, it was originally written under the title An Exile in the East. Um, huh. And they changed it to judgment day. The editors did when they were publishing it. Um, I don't know for sure exactly what she was planning to tighten up. Um, she specifically and purposefully made the narrative a bit convoluted. Um, and that's a technique that she did in her novel, the violent Barrett away, which makes that novel somewhat confusing. Um, and, and it seems to have been, um, part of partly influenced by, Faulkner, William Faulkner, who was a contemporary of her early writing um, and who she admired, from what I understand, a, a lot, um, even if she didn't agree with everything that he wrote. Um, but, Tim, did you feel that same way? Did you feel taken aback? Did you feel abacked? <laughs> I felt abacked. Yeah. I did feel feel abacked. And for me, I, the ending of the story kind of worked. I mean, I appreciate Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it's kind of jarring. Um, and it and it made sense. My the thing I think if O'Connor had more time to work on the story, I'm, I feel confident that the thing that she would have worked on was. I don't feel like we knew what Tanner's problem was, other than he was dying. Um, in all of the other stories, especially her classic stories. The spiritual malady of the character is crystal clear within usually a page and a half. Crystal clear. So, oh gosh, let's let's Parker's back. Parker is probably, I mean, simply put, he's just fallen prey to the sins of the flesh. He's just wrapped up in kind of this egotistical living minute by minute his spiritual yearnings are displaced by his kind of like physical yearnings. Um, and in all the other stories that we've really appreciated that we've really loved by O'Connor, it just seems like the problem that the main character is dealing with, we know what it is. And I had a hard time locating it with Tanner. I, I felt like maybe I could make some guesses, but even now having just read it, I don't really know what Tanner's, 
singular sin is. Yeah, I think that what happens, one of the things that is the, the major flaw of the story, and like you said, it probably is what she would have revised, is that he, as a character, feels less like an individual and more like an amalgamation of of mm. uh, things that she wants to comment on. Mm. Um, in particular, he is representative of... Um, he and all the various characters are representative of the changing South um, mm-hmm. a- and what that means. But they often think they, they're, they're thin as characters. Yeah. Um, and what you're saying speaks to that, I think. And in, in throughout the, we, the only, the only thing, the only character that I think we really have a strong sense of what he's like is, um, oh uh, shoot. What's his name? Uh, his, his Col- Coleman Coleman. Um, and I think we get that um, almost in how much he's limited within the story, but we can talk about that later. But I'm going to rely heavily in this conversation, um, or at least I'm going to refer heavily to Ralph Wood's book, because in his chapter in Flannery O'Connor and the Christ Haunted South, it is chapter, it's a, his chapters are long, but it is chapter four. And the chapter is called The South as a Mannered and Mysteriously Redemptive Region. He has about eight pages specifically on this chapter in a section called The Lensless Spectacles of Vision and Charity. Huh. And one of the things that he talks about in there is that, as you said, Tim, it is a rewrite of the initial story, The Geranium. And uh, so that might be worth talking about quickly. Um, t- Tim, can you summarize for anybody who didn't read the geranium? Can you quickly just summarize that story for us, and then go ahead and jump in and summarize this one? Oh gosh! Um, quickly, I, you don't have to get at the details. So let's start with Judgment Day. Judgment Day is an old man named Tanner has been forced to relocate to New York City, where his um, daughter lives. He's living with her and her husband in an apartment in New York. They are childless. And he, Tanner, is a lot of the story is built as a flashback of Tanner remembering his friends, um, a couple of black men that he kind of like was sharing a shack with one of them. And um, there's a certain camaraderie that we feel with between. Tanner and these old friends, even though there's also a certain level of uh, hostility and Tanner keeps from his present day circumstances in New York, wanting somehow to kind of go back to where he's from to surprise his friends through his death and to kind of play a trick on them through his death. And he ends up kind of having an acquaintance with, um, a black couple that moves into the apartment nearby his daughter. And he kind of is hoping that he can form a kind of camaraderie with especially the man that moves in next door. But his attempt to establish that camaraderie fails because he thinks he's an Alabama man. He's not an Alabama man. He's an actor from New York city. Um, he seems to have really no way of kind of ingratiating himself with this man or his wife. And the story kind of collapses, that, that the story collapses. Tanner collapses when his last attempt to ingratiate himself to the actor, the actor gets really angry, shoves him up against the wall, 
and Tanner ends up being held. It, it sounds like he does he end up dying while kind of putting his limbs through the vertical spokes of the stairwell. Is that how? Is that what, how you guys read it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets. Stu- um, I think. I mean, he gets stuffed in there. The guy just. Uh, yeah, I mean, the guy pushed him and gave him a stroke the first time. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So and then we flash forward to Tanner kind of what he imagined, I think before, right before he died, which is he is going to show up in a pine box of his coffin on a train to his friends that are back in the South. And when they pry off the pine box top, there's going to be this surprise that he's imagined. But really what happens is the surprise is that he has, the top has not been put up by his friends, but another black man that doesn't recognize him and his surprise is foiled and thus his hopes for like the judgment are not really established in the way that he thought they were going to be established. His, his vision of kind of like the judgment day is reversed. Did I feel like I left something important out? Well, I mean, oh, the daughter, the daughter. Well, you got a few things out of order, and then the the daughter is how it ends. Which is kind he, of he the point. He has the vision before. He has the vision before they stuff him into the stairs. He falls right. He's trying to escape from his daughter to go back to Georgia. He falls down the stairs. the The neighbor, the black guy and his wife, pick him up, and then he unfortunately says the you know preacher comment again. Uh huh. And he's saying Judgment Day, Judgment Day, and then the guy shoves him into the stairwell. But it ends with the daughter, who's been sort of the set up as the antagonist here, right? That she's not going to let him go home. Um, she buries him in New York City as opposed to his wishes, and then can't sleep, and finally boxes him up and sends him back home, and then she can sleep. Because the whole story is a, it starts first line: I'm going home, dead or alive. But the whole story is I'm going home. Right. Yes. Right. And as in the violent buried away, the ending is just a few minutes removed from the beginning, and then there's a bunch of flashbacks back and forth yes. in between. And so I guess it's hard for me to know if if the confusion is is poor writing or if it's because he's already had the stroke at the beginning of the story, and the whole story is being told in the mind of someone who's had a stroke. Yeah. Well, yeah, the... it's kind of broke. It's broken, and there are some transitions. I remember there's a couple of transitions. Yes, I can find and there are some this is where it's Faulkner, though. It's all interwoven, right? And I—that's not bad writing. That's just—that's on purpose. Um, well, right, but I guess I don't because I knew it was unfinished. I guess I was unsure of whether to say, you know, make some kind of case for the brilliant writing, and then you're going to be like, no, that's totally not what she was trying to do. She just wasn't finished fixing it, you know? Yeah. But it, but it no, was something I mean... that had occurred to me. That it could be just that it's the interior monologue like Faulkner and, and he's, you know, he's, he's dying. He's had a stroke. Yeah. And I think she's purposely trying to make a complex moral, I mean, a complex plot that's representative or in line with the com- complex moral ideas that she's trying to talk about here. Right. But see, the thing that confused me is when he whittles a pair of glasses <laughs> and then the guy can see, I mean, mm. what is that? Okay, well, yeah, we need to talk. That's the that is the crucial uh, scene of that's like to me the whole the whole point of the story there. I mean, I understand the symbolism of it, but you don't whittle a pair of glasses. Well, you do if they don't have you could if they don't have lenses. But he puts them on and he can see. He says, "Oh, you can't see," and he whittles him some glasses and he puts them on. And he's like, "Oh, now I can see." So 
I mean, well, so this is a symbolic exchange. This is where we have to talk about uh, Coleman. But let's let's first let's let's summarize okay. the geranium because the geranium is a pretty poor story in my opinion, and um, there's a reason why it was never really published until it was published in this whole collection. And let me rephrase that: it's a pretty poor story for someone of her caliber. It's just a classic. Right. It's a young writer's mistakes, right? So, uh, Tim, can you summarize that one for us? So the main character is. In the, in the geranium, Old Dudley, he's also been relocated. Um, I don't know that it says that it's in New York City, but it's it clearly does. in the... Okay. Um, so he opens, he's looking out of a window of an apartment across an alley where the people across the alley have put a geranium out on the windowsill. Um, and he's like really preoccupied with this while at the same time he's very resentful of living in the apartment with his daughter that's the same as the later story and um he continues so also it flashes back and forth from the apartment in new york and where he lived in coa county so instead of corinth it was coa county um he wants to kind of like go back to this old way of living, but he's trapped in the city. Same thing. Uh, a black couple moves in or no, no, no. It's just, just a, a guy. Black, black. Isn't his daughter with him? No, no, no. No, he's just, just by a guy. himself. Just a guy. A well-dressed young man. Um, and Dudley, like the news story, mistakes his identity, believes that he is a servant and tells him that he's a servant. His daughter gets pretty annoyed at this. Um, he has to go down the stairs and get something for his daughter. He does this, and along the way he passes the man's apartment, and he can see there's an African-American woman in there, and he chides, not out loud, but he chides her for wearing glasses. So that's also a similarity. Goes back up the stairs, meets the man that he was talking about, and he has another flashback uh, of hunting, and Dudley's pretending to, old Dudley is pretending to aim a gun. The man offers to help, and Dudley kind of like makes it slowly up the stairs. He's also feeling decrepit, back into the apartment with his daughter, and returns to his chair, and he starts crying, and he can't hold it back. And the story kind of ends after the man bickers, he and the man bicker, and they're caring for the geranium, and the man tells him to let go, go get the plant, if he cares about it so much, but Dudley can't do it. And we kind of fade out. (laughs) I'm telling you, I had a terrible time with this story. Terrible time. So where do we do? Let's just do a quick comparison. Um, Where do you, where are the similarities? Like what is, or rather, I guess the similarities are somewhat obvious. What does she, what does she change in from the first one to the second one? The the biggest thing is that old Dudley is filled with pride, right? He can't change the course of his direction, even though he realizes he's made a mistake in coming to New York city, but he can't, he can't change it because he's too prideful. Right. So uh, he's, humiliated that the the black neighbor has seen him you know in a moment of uh daydreaming right and pretending Mm. to shoot a gun and so he's humiliated about that so he can't go back downstairs and um he gets chewed out by the geranium guy so the whole thing is a private but it's so 
that's what struck me. So I read Geranium first and then immediately read Judgment Day. And what shocked me was, you know, all the elements are there of, of the setup for the structure between the two stories. Very, very similar. But yet Tanner is so very different from old Dudley. He and that and I agree with Tim about trying to figure out what's his moral flaw. The same thing with the daughter, because both of them like make strong statements and then take it back and have genuine moments of affection and kindness toward one another. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he does make it back home. The whole, the whole. I guess, I guess his wanting to go back home in a sense is repentance because he's going to go back home to work for a black doctor. You right. mean? And, and you, mean the, you mean in the second one? Yeah. In, in the, the second judge, one. In judgment. Day. Right, right. So he initially leaves when he finds out this black doctor has bought the property that he's been squatting on, and the guy offers him a chance to work for him, and he's saying, you know. The government, how's he put it? The government ain't made white folks work for black folks yet or something like that. And the black mm-hmm. doctor says, oh, it's coming mm-hmm. and it's already come for you. So you might as well just do it. And he's in that moment of pride. He leaves, but he's so miserable in New York City, he takes it all back and says, I'll go. I'm going to go work for this black doctor. This was a huge mistake. And so he's going to he's going to go back dead or alive, as he says. So it's it's very much a reversal of the first story in that he's not prideful. He's been humbled by this. But then he's kind of all over the place in other ways too, right? Yeah, he's, he's, seems... he's got a complicated interior. He's angry towards some, but but then even reaching out to the neighbor as poorly as he did that um, was, I think, an act of humility on his part in a sense. That's in stuff... both stories, Angelina. No, well, he doesn't. Old Dudley doesn't do it. Old Dudley refuses to even look at the black neighbor. The black neighbor is nice to him and helps yeah. him up the stairs and brings him back home, and he won't even acknowledge his existence. Um, but I got to tell you, the, the stuff out of Tanner's view about how to interact with black people, that just, I've heard those things. I've seen mm. that attitude. That just It just rang so, so true and familiar to me. And, and, his interior monologue, right, is that I know how to talk to black people, right? Mm-hmm. I have I have the gift, right? And there is a certain almost choreography, you know what I'm talking about, that takes place in the South between mm-hmm. blacks and whites, right? Where they're both sort of playing this role, right? And so he played a role and Coleman played a role. And part of that role was to call him preacher. And it was kind of a ice-breaking... I don't even know what to call it. I've just, I've seen it, this, you know, this wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's condescending, okay? I don't mean to suggest it's not, but. But it's part uh, of the social dance. Yes, it's part of the social dance. And then he gets to New York City and tries to do the social dance. And, and all you know, of the moves of yeah, the dance are yeah, shifted. Not, As, the rules are not the same in New York City. Oh. Ralph Wood says that he calls this manners. So he says that what O'Connor is suggesting here is that in for Tanner in the nor- in the north in the north they don't know there's no rule there's no um there's no manners um okay, he, that that there's a way that you're supposed to interact with each other and that you even if you're putting on a mask which is something that Ralph Wood talks a lot about and I'm going to get to that that you're putting on a mask but you at least have some manners there's at least a code and in the north there's not and so he's responding he you know he he can't abide by the fact that there is no code and to say Mm -hmm. that but that's and that there's a more there's a more complex view of of racism in this story than there is in the first one the first story in my opinion is just a really overwrought like simplistic um 
argument that um, it, it, unpoetic. Uh, how to how to put this? Um, exploration of bigotry. So when the um, when the is it, is it kind of leaning toward propaganda a little bit, David? Well, I, I don't. Is I don't that know. Overstating. I mean, I think that might be overstating. I just think that she's not being very um, careful about it. Like wh- yeah. she, you know, Alice Walker critiques the geranium. That or the writer Alice Walker critiqued the geranium by saying that that because she, because she complained that the um, the black characters were passive and self-effacing, um, and that they were an example of O'Connor's ignorant and ins- insulting racial stereotyping. That was her quote, um, as found in Ralph Wood's book, and so the characters in it are not very. There's not a lot of depth to them, and then you even have like the when the geranium falls and crashes, it's just like too obviously representative of how the bigotry of the old man's generation has to be shattered on the hard fact of racial equality as, as again, Ralph Wood puts it. So he says that if you look at it that way, that what's going on is Dudley in the first story is appalled, not by his own situation. It's not his pride. It's his racism that's in play. He's mad because in the North, in the integrated North, the black characters have freedoms that they shouldn't in the South and that he therefore does not, he therefore cannot have an advantageous relationship toward them. Uh, So he's object. He objects. uh, For example, Ralph Wood writes this. He objects to their stealing as long as they accepted his own superior wisdom about fishing and hunting and guns. But in the North, the Southern racial codes um, do not obtain. Uh, and but then you have but then you take that and what she's doing is she's taking that and it's not as simplistic in the second story, so it's at the end of her life right and as you said some of these last stories she's trying to like get a lot down on paper that she never got down in the right way and so she right. always was fond of the geranium as something that she wanted to tell that's what Giraud says in in his introduction he says that she liked that story a lot but that so she came back and she was trying to fulfill what she was doing there. Because it's really not very good. I mean, it's it's you know, by by great by great writer standards, we'll put it that way. Right. GWS capitalized great writer standards. Um, <laughs> it's not very good. Like if I wrote it, it'd be like, ooh, that's great. But uh, <laughs> I feel like, ooh, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> but you know what? She, but then what she has going on here is much more complicated. And so, well, I'm gonna just quote Ralph Wood again as kind of setting this up. Because he says that Tanner is neither an unrepentant racist nor a saintly humanist. He's a strange amalgam of pride and humility, the first having to be confessed painfully before the latter can be embraced graciously. Um, Though Tanner lives an entire century after the Civil War, he is no less obsessed with his honor, especially his racial honor. He's moved to the metropolitan north because the farm containing his backwoods shack has been purchased by a black dentist named Dr. Foley. Tanner could have stayed put, since his black landlord has asked only that Tanner share the profits of his whiskey still, but Tanner refuses this mutually convenient arrangement. He insists on maintaining his superiority, his racial superiority, knowing that in this still segregated South, color distinction brings honor that neither money nor property can purchase. Mm-hmm. So then the story becomes about him, about that that sort of that sort of pride working its way out of him. Um, and you get so then that's where you do you get this moment that you were talking about Angelina with the glasses, and how. And we should, I guess we should probably read that, huh? Let's talk about that passage. Okay, let's see. Where is that? Um, 
It's 538 in my book. Yeah. Okay. And I'm actually reading from the collection today, too, so... So they're out they're out working, right? Okay, Cigar five thirty seven. So he's the boss, right? He gets to tell people he gets to tell the, the workers yeah. what to do. Start with a um a large black loose jointed negro twice his own size. Do you see that part? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tim, can you start reading for us? Sure. A large black Loose-jointed Negro, twice his own size, had begun hanging around the edge of the sawmill, watching the others work, and when he was not watching, sleeping, in full view of them, sprawling like a gigantic bear on his back. Who is that? He had asked. If he wants to work, tell him to come here. If he don't, tell him to go. No idlers are going to hang around here. None of them knew who he was. They knew he didn't want to work. They knew something else not where he had come from, nor why, though he was probably brother to one, cousin to all of them. He had ignored him for a day. Against the six of them, he was one yellow-faced, scrawny white man with shaking hands. He was willing to wait for trouble, but not forever. The next day, the stranger came again. After the six, Tanner worked... After the six, Tanner worked, had seen the idler there for half the morning. They quit and began to eat a full 30 minutes before noon. He had not risked ordering them up. He had gone to the source of the trouble. The stranger was leaning against the tree on the edge of the clearing, watching with half-closed eyes. The insolence on his face barely covered the wariness behind it. His look said, this ain't much of a white man, so why he come on so big? What he fixing to do? He had meant to say, in, this knife is in my hand now, but if you ain't out of my sight, but as he drew closer, he changed his mind. The Negro's eyes were small and bloodshot. Tanner supposed there was a knife on him somewhere that he would as soon use as not. His own penknife moved, directed solely by some intruding intelligence that worked in his hands. He had no idea what he was carving. But when he reached the Negro, he had already made two holes the size of half dollars in the piece of bark. The Negro's gaze fell on his hand and was held. His jaw slackened. His eyes did not move from the knife tearing recklessly around the bark. He watched as if some invisible power working on the wood, as if he saw some invisible power working on the wood. He looked himself then and, astonished, saw the connected rims of a pair of spectacles. He held them away from him and looked through the holes past a pile of shavings and on into the woods to the edge of the pen where they kept, seeing, where they kept their mules. Angelina, you, you pick, pick it up there, Angelina. You can't, you can't see so good, can you, boy, he said, and began scrapping the ground with his foot to turn up a piece of wire. He picked up a small piece of hay wire. In a minute, he found another, shorter piece, and picked that up. He began to attach these to the bark. He was in no hurry now that he knew what he was doing. When the spectacles were finished, he handed them to the Negro. Put these on, he said. I hate to see anybody can't see good. There was an instant when the Negro might have done one thing or another, might have taken the glasses and crushed them in his hand, or grabbed the knife and turned it on him. He saw the exact instant in the muddy, liquor-swollen liquor eyes when the pleasure of having a knife in this white man's gut was balanced against something else he could not tell what. The Negro reached for the glasses. He attached the bows carefully behind his ears and looked forth. 
He peered this way and that with exaggerated solemnity, and then he looked directly at Tanner and grinned, or grimaced, Tanner could not tell which, but he had an instant sensation of seeing before him a negative image of himself, as if clownishness and captivity had been their common lot. The vision failed him before he could decipher it. Preacher, he said, what you hang around here for? He picked up another piece of bark and began, without looking at it, to carve again. This ain't Sunday. This here ain't Sunday, the Negro said. This is Friday, he said. That's the way it is with you preachers. Drunk all week so you don't know when Sunday is. What you see through those glasses? See a man? What kind of man? See the man make these here glasses? <laughs> is, he, is he white or black? He's white. The Negro said as if only at that moment was his vision sufficiently improved to detect it. Yes, sir. He white, he said. Well, you treat him like he was white, Tanner said. What's your name? Name Coleman, the Negro said. Okay. And he had not got rid of Coleman since. Okay. So, um, Angelina, what's your problem with this scene? <laughs> so he just makes him a pair of fake glasses, and the guy just puts on a pair of fake glasses? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not prompted by anything, right, Angelina? There's no... Like, the action doesn't prompt the making of the glasses. Is that what's going on for you? I guess I just don't understand why anybody would make a fake pair of glasses and give them to someone, and someone would put on the fake pair of glasses. There's nothing about this scene makes sense to me. They wouldn't. No, I'm with you. They, I'm with you. They wouldn't. Nobody would do that, except he did. That's, so what does that mean? That's the point. So, okay, look, if you look closely at the... Um, Okay, so he says, Tanner supposed there was a knife on him and somewhere, and, and that's on him somewhere that he would as soon use as not. Okay, this is, there's two really important lines here. His own pen knife moved, <laughs> his own pen knife moved, directed solely, that's a key word there, directed solely by some intruding intelligence that worked in his hands. He had no idea what he was carving. But when he reached the Negro, he had already made two holes the size of half dollars in the piece of bark. The Negro's gaze fell on his hands, and his hand was held. His jaw slackened. His eyes did not move from the knife tearing recklessly on the, around the bark. He watched as if he saw an invisible power working on the wood. So, Okay, I marked both of those lines. Yeah. I know it's significant, but just I can't, it's just out of reach. What is he, happening? He, I don't believe he... It, it's, there's something going on. In, it's, this is the moment where the story changes. Yes. This is the climax. This is the moment where the spiritual enters the physical. So the 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 intrude there's he is not the one carving anymore. There's so, the the intruding intelligence is carving for him. But yes. but but he also that's also recognized by Coleman. Coleman recognizes it too. He recognizes the invisible power working on the wood. I David, I I hear what you're saying. I'm I had the same response that I think Angelina had to this. I think we're supposed I think to. In her, I, but I think, I think in her other stories, when God moves through a character or through the material world, it is germane to the rest of the story. And it's, it's very clearly like an outside intelligence that is causing spiritual action to happen within the previous stories. I think in this one, for me this action is just not germane to anything else in the story. It just, 
well, God I f- just kind of decided ex machina to have Tanner carve a pair of glasses out of bark. And we just don't, there's nothing before that that really prompts us to say, oh yeah, this is the culmination of God's graceful action within the characters, within the story to bring it to this point. Well, it's the culmination in as much as it's, um, it's a flashback. So he doesn't, I don't think that it's something, it's, it's the classic example of God working over the long haul. So for us as readers, we can recognize it as that, but within the context of a story that goes back and forth, it happened earlier and he's recognizing it later, or it's the repercussions, the meaning of it is happening later, but it's also about being a masquerade. It's about, it's about, um, it's about, it's, that's kind of the, the point I think. And I'm not saying that it's not flawed. But I'm just right. trying to get so at what O'Connor's saying... doing. It's the okay, point okay. is so, it's a masquerade. Okay, so to go it's... back to my earlier point then about the the interactions in the South at this time between blacks and white, it, it's a, it's a bit of a choreography, right? It's a code. So you're saying this is part of the the role playing. Yeah, I and give that... somebody a fake pair of glasses, and he puts on a fake pair of glasses. I mean, the whole thing is artificial. This is the dance. Yeah, it's artificial, except it's done. Except that God takes that that masquerade and uses it. Well, right, and and it's a thirty. It's, it's the beginning of a thirty-year masquerade. This is thirty years later, earlier. Right, and and where? But it's haunting Tanner. This moment and this relationship thirty years later are haunting him as he's potentially dying. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. I get what you're saying that it's a masquerade, but where is the kind of like the theme of the masquerade inaugurated in the story? Yeah, it doesn't seem connected or foreshadowed yeah. like so many of the other things do. It was kind of jarring. Well, it was it's like, what so just early. Yeah. Because then that's that's where, I mean, I'm not again. I'm not saying it's flawed. I'm not saying it's not flawed. But what she's but that's why it's it's because it's going back and forth. It causes problems. I mm-hmm. suspect she may unravel. She may have unraveled that a little bit more. But the point, you know, why does he choose not to kill Tanner? Why does Coleman choose not to kill Tanner? Because he sees. The spiritual reality of what's happening, right? Yeah, what is the spiritual reality that he's seeing? Well, I don't know. So Tanner gives Coleman the glasses, but then Tanner has the vision, but then the vision fails. It's Tanner who needs to be able to see. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what's happening here. Well, what? How does how does Coleman see Tanner? Like when he puts the glasses on, how does he? What is what is the words that she uses to to show him how what? That Phil O'Connor uses to show what Coleman sees Tanner as. Oh, well, there are negative images of themselves. Is that what she's getting at? Yeah, but then there's a specific image. Um, that he's there's something about something about their common lot. Did you remember that he says that at the top of five thirty nine he sees Tanner as clownish and in captive. That their common lot is clownishness and captivity. So they're both trapped. And so in other words, where I might be tempted to look as the social code as being something that traps the black man, she's saying it's got them both trapped. Yeah, and it's, it's making and, it's making clowns out of both of them. Right. And then he and but then Coleman looks at Tanner and says this man essentially this man's a clown. This man is just as captive as I am. This man's a clown and this and then essentially it seems like to me it almost seems like he's saying he, it's saying that Coleman recognizes that Tanner needs him and that's why Coleman sticks by him for those years despite the persecution despite uh, 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 Tanner's 
you know, arrogance and his, uh, uh, cruel, I mean, not cruelty, but, um, his, uh, I don't, I don't know what the word is exactly. His racism, (laughs) (laughs) his bigotry, he, he sticks with Coleman, right? Um, or Tanner rather. And be, and so his eyes are open to the reality of who Tanner is and that, and that's, so yeah, that's part of what they're, they're intertwined in this, this sort of woven tapestry that, that all this darkness, this ugliness traps them in. All right. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out here since this, 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 this show has quickly become my therapy session. So I'm just going <laughs> to air a little more dirty laundry about my life, but I know Tanner and Coleman, okay? They are both in their 70s right now. And their relationship is so complicated. And and there is a genuine love and affection between these two men. And yet, they play this code, this dance, this masquerade, every, every interaction. And even as a small child, I would watch it and think... I'm missing something here. Like it was so obvious to me that they were both playing a role and that there was some code going on and I did not know how to decipher it. And I was not, so I'm born in a different time period. I'm not initiated into this code and I would violate it. Like I would invite Coleman into our home and he would not come in. He would always stay at the door. And I knew that I had violated a code in asking huh. him to come in, and he was he was unwilling to violate it himself, right? And I mean, this is a Flannery O'Connor story right there that I'm just like, like this. Hey, man, we're all equal. Get in my house. But his physical discomfort at the idea of coming in the house was it was very intense. I could see how uncomfortable he was with the suggestion that I had made that he come in the house. Um, but and, and still to this day, and and yet they're both ridiculously loyal to each other. I've seen each of them get the other one out of scrapes. Um, you know, the, the Coleman in, in my real life story is a former Golden Globe boxer. Golden Glove boxer. Okay? And um, uh, an, an irate neighbor uh, once uh, made some threats against the tanner of the story, and so Golden Glove boxer Coleman went over there and punched out the neighbor on behalf huh. of Tanner, right? I mean, just they, they just ha- they have this fierce loyalty toward one another and affection, and yet they do not approach one another as equals, right? They, or maybe they do, and the code is somehow. I don't know how to interpret Rotten that, and so I, yeah, I don't know well, how to interpret the story because I don't know how to interpret that. I mean, it's real, and I don't know how to make sense of that code, but they cannot break out of it. That's what O'Connor's I, saying, I though, is that, that it's so complicated, and it's it's that that they go back and forth. And Ralph Wood points out that, you know, later on in the story, um, Tanner recognizes he has, that he has to relinquish um, his, the vision of himself as Ralph Wood puts it as a, as being someone who can control or be in charge of um, people like be in charge of Coleman. Um, the word that the word that I think he thinks of in the story is like n n word handler, right? The mm. the yes. uh, the mask of that. He so he's putting on the mask that even though he is, you know, low class white trash, he somehow but sees himself as someone who can still be in charge of of a powerful, strong, uh, smart black man like Coleman. But then he has to, when he finally issues it, finally is able to, when he finally gives that up and says, okay, you know what? 
you know, he he's not too proud anymore. He's been humbled enough that he's willing to go work for the doctor. That's when he finally is able to realize that Coleman was the one who is his true companion. It's not mm-hmm. his daughter or his family. It's Coleman who is the one that, that like was loyal to him. Um, and so he has this mask. He puts the Tanner puts this mask on that he's actually in charge. And Coleman from, from time to time, at least at first, it seems like is able to, to set himself free from the mask of like the way other, the way Tanner sees him. But then he slips back into it as well. And that's why you get these references. I think to like the bear and the monkey, whereas like the way Tanner and other people like Tanner see Coleman and, and black people, you know, like that stereotypical mm-hmm. awful metaphor that's used. Um, but, and he's, and that's why that reference is used because he keeps, but, and he but can't, he can't the strip him. Is that the roles keep switching, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that is very true to my own experience. I got, I mean, this story just, uh, I think I was confused about the story because I'm confused about this relationship in real life. And it's the same exact thing where the Tanner and the Coleman in my life, each of them thinks the other, each of them thinks that they're really in charge of the relationship. Right? Right. But, but each of them are really taking care of the other one. I mean, it's so obvious, right? So, so the Tanner in the story will make big shows about how, you know, you got to take care of these guys and they can't take care of themselves. And I've been taking care of him for 50 years. And the Coleman of the story will be like, oh, that Tanner, he's so naive and stupid. Everybody, everybody who works for him is robbing him blind and he can't see. And I got to go in there and get back the stuff that gets stolen from him. And, but they're both totally locked into this role, right? And they never break out of it, but there's another underlying reality and it's, it's amazing that this is still a dynamic in 2017. And I don't think I'm not I mean, I got to tell you these guys genuinely love one another and are terribly loyal. And so it's just weird to think that they are they are locked into some kind of social code and dance that they either don't know how to break out of or they don't want to break out of. I can't make well, sense. Well, and of it gets in the story it gets even more complicated when you bring in the the um the actor. Right. Yeah. Cuz he Tanner... refuses to play the role. Exactly. He refuses to wear the mask. And in the end, he gets enraged and pushes Tanner. And Tanner has the stroke. And then later on, he actually ends up beating him or pushing him into the stairs. And he and Tanner ends up dying. And he puts him into the puts him into the staircase like the stocks. Yeah, which is another imprisonment, right? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, so, so, he's imprisoned in all of his interactions. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you guys a question? Do you think that O'Connor is, I'll give you three options, for the code, against the code, or um, neutral? She just She thinks that it's just sort of a cultural accretion from the South that is neither good – or it could be both good and bad. I think it's all of the above, though. Mm-hmm. Because I think she's against she's against the code, but she's not, a, and she's against what those relationships do and the way masks affect our relationships and like because it creates racism. an artificial bond, right? And but it, she and she's against the bigotry and all that. But uh-huh. she also, I believe, seems to be somewhat sympathetic. For good or for ill, and I don't know how to think about. I don't know exactly what I think of this. To the idea of like the the way, at least the code or or manners. Ralph Wood uses the word manners. The way the manners fake though they may be, 
at least create guidelines or like at least mm-hmm. can help maintain the at least can help dictate the way we re- relate to each other and so like once you eliminate the code the manners the masks then you get the actor who yeah yeah who punches or you know well you have to Tanner. replace it with something if you get rid and, of that right, right. you have and, to replace it with something and 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 you know he not only is he not um he the actor's like anti-god and all that too right he's like anti because he calls him preacher is that right yeah. yeah Tanner calls him preacher just like he called Coleman and the guy expresses you know basically you know there is no god and so once you eliminate the manners and you eliminate god then you get like then you get like what's the will to power I don't know <laughs> violence what's the what's what's left that can maintain right, a culture right. or maintain you know what's the code the code's violence right well and then the code is what the daughter says everybody just minds their own business which I, that definitely Flannery's not for that right right but so that, and that's I, what you end up with everybody just has to not talk to anybody right that's it, the only way to have peace the, the so really you got two extremes of, of social codes here so the northern social code is everybody just acts like no one else exists right that's how we maintain peace and you almost got to feel sorry for tanner because he genuinely is trying to be friendly to the neighbor he, he's just speaking a language that the neighbor can't hear. Right? He's doing right. the code. He's saying preacher is supposed to be a signal that I'm being friendly and we're buddies. But it's, you know, it's taken as, a, as an insult because they're just not speaking the same language. But I certainly don't think she's saying the New York City code of everybody just mind your own business and act like no one else is alive is, is the appropriate response here. They're, they're both messed up. That's why I think that she left the story. I mean, she may have cleaned it up a little bit, but I think she probably would have left it fairly complicated because I think that the way all these visions that Tanner has, these remembrances and all that, the way they they weave together is representative, is that objective correlative to the way these relationships are so complicated as well. Because if it's too neat and tidy, we wouldn't have it, like this turmoil as we're reading You're it. right. You're right. We wouldn't feel like... Um, lost and confused and anxious about what's going on if it was laid out as simply as some of her other work mm-hmm, you're right now I had I, echoes. See, I'm not sure that I agree with that I'm not sure that I agree with that because I I think what's powerful about O'Connor is that we're not left in an epistemic quandary we're left in a spiritual moral moral quandary and I think this story has left us wondering what has happened not what has happened in the same way that like when the bull gores misses, is it Mrs. Green. But don't you think Tanner, don't you think Tanner's had a moment of a spiritual, of spiritual reckoning? I think that O'Connor wants Tanner to have a moment of spiritual rep- reckoning. I don't think that the story succeeds. So I think as a reader, it's, it's really muted at best. See, I, I felt echoes of everything that rises in this story, right? So somebody gets, somebody makes an overture to a black person that is responded in violence, has a stroke, and just wants to go home. And going home is going back to the black people in their lives, right? She wanted the maid. He wants Coleman. So I thought it was very similar. In that sense, then the collection of stories goes full circle. I appreciate that generous interpretation (laughs) (laughs) i I think for me what's so powerful about 
O'Connor's stories is that um, there is just this sublime unity. There's, I mean, it's sometimes in in her best stories. I feel like if you if you removed one sentence, the overall structure would be diminished. Like Salieri says in Mozart, if you displace one note, the whole structure would fall. I feel that way about O'Connor's short stories, and in this one. I felt like there was such a disunity. Like Aristotle would be thrilled by her other stories because of the profound and singular forward force of the stories. And I think with this one, part of the reason it doesn't succeed for me, again, granting that she didn't have time to finish it, is that the forward force of the story is bifurcated, not just bifurcated, it's split into about four different directions. It's partly about race. Quadricate, quadricated. Quadricated. <laughs> uh, it's partly sort of about pride. It's partly about growing old. It's partly about manners. It's just not, it doesn't to me feel like a unified, coherent story. Can I, I wouldn't normally do this, but because we're up against time and because this is the last story and because it's complicated, can I read a couple like a page or so here from this uh, Ralph Wood book. Yeah, please. Yeah, tell me the page number so I can follow it. It is on page 140. So it, start, it starts with Tanner Knows. I'm going to start with that first full paragraph uh, uh, that um, Ralph Wood puts there. Um, if anybody else has this book, feel free to pause the show and follow along. But Ralph Wood writes, Tanner knows as a result of this appalling encounter, and this is the encounter with the actor, that his time is shortened. And so he determines to return home, whether alive or dead. In the meantime, he has overheard his daughter, overheard his daughter declare that she won't bother keeping her promise to bury her father back in Corinth. Tanner's desire to be laid to rest in his native Georgia clay is more than nostalgia for the warm southern womb he has mistakenly left for the cold northern city. It is also a confession that his notion of quote, N-word handling, I'm not going to say it on the air, obviously, was a sinful delusion, and that the mercy that Coleman has had mimed 30 years ago is the real truth. Now cut off from the only companion he has ever known, Tanner imagines taking Coleman on a tour of New York, showing him that this city is no kind of place. It is not humanely habitable because there is no there are no self-imposed deterrence, no manners. In this Yankee Babylon, Tanner complains, people run over each other in their unrestrained and hell-bent rush. He wants to return, whether living or dead, to his Dixie homeland. There, he knows, people live in a mutuality whose manners are marked by humorous charades. Hence Tanner's dream of arriving home in a pine coffin, only to jump out and startle Coleman with a joke. Judgment Day, Judgment Day, he would cry. Don't you know it's Judgment Day? I'm going to skip ahead a bit here. Judgment Day is a welcome prospect because he has both confessed the, the, the gargantuan sin of his false racist masked and identified the far larger liberty of his true identity as a witness to the truth. As Tanner tries to wake his mate of the, way to make his way to the train station, he barely emerges from the apartment before collapsing from another stroke. Yet he dreams not of a dreadful uh, dies irae, but of the casket charade, and so he mutters his jaunty punchline about Judgment Day. The black actor, having heard the commotion in the hall, comes to the door. As a mannerless man, he believes that there is no law enforcing mercy to the dying Tanner. Utterly at liberty to do his own unrestrained will, he taunts the old man, declaring that there is no such thing as, a, as an eternal court of judgment. There is nothing beyond this present day, Tanner's dying day, the day of his extinction. 
Though muddled by his rupturing brain vessels, Tanner remains undaunted. Again, he calls the black entertainer a preacher, the same word that exited the man's murderous wrath, ex- that excited, excited. The man's, yeah, excited the man's murderous wrath once more, or once before. That the black man viciously kills the white man, stuffing his head and arms and legs through the banisters, is nothing to the point. Tanner's grisly death is yet another validation of O'Connor's witty analysis of her own work. While a lot of folks get killed, nobody gets hurt. Tanner is physically brutalized, but remains spiritually unscathed. He cannot be deterred by something so small as death, for he is headed home, in the ultimate, if not in the immediate sense. He is not bound for Corinth, Georgia, but for the promised land, the the region whose silence is broken only with shouts of hallelujah, the eternal city of transparent masks, where everyone is joined in glad obedience to the unenforceable in the precise sense that W.H. Auden described. And Auden wrote, We must never attempt to throw our mirrors away. We may only pray that God shall one day see fit to take them away from us. Perhaps they are never taken away, even from the saints, but in paradise all mirrors become transparent and so cease to reflect. End quote. O'Connor's ending is so triumphant that she dared not add anything preachy or pontifical to it. And then, she, then he talks about how, you know... Um, well, then he says this. In her final story, unlike her first, O'Connor succeeds in making theological mystery cohere ever so finely with both manners and masks. She shows that Southern manners at their worst undergird an evil system of race and class domination. Yet she also demonstrates that at their best, these same manners enable her protagonist to wear the gracious mask of obedience to the unenforceable. It is not the old mask of the will to power, but the new mask, hey, will to power, but the new mask that surrenders such power for a greater one, the power of radical mutuality. Um, so... Uh, Angelina or Tim, do you have any any thoughts on on what what he's saying there? Oh, I'll buy I, it. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I Jim. think it's the case of Ralph Wood has given Flannery O'Connor the credit that she deserves, but I think the interpretation outpaces the story. Meaning, I think that he had to do a lot of good and reasonable literary criticism to arrive at the points where he arrived. I think you can find kind of like the seeds for where the seeds in the story, but he had to, I think Ralph Wood had to grow them seeds, those seeds himself. I don't think they grew enough in the story to say the story succeeds. Well, Okay, so I actually think this is going to be, this is cruel. This is cruel and unusual punishment. I think that that is actually a great place to stop. Because what I want to know is based on what I just read, and, and you guys followed along with if you have the book, and the things we've been talking about, I want to hear from our listeners, yeah, who are great. very insightful, if they agree with that. I, I find this a very complicated story. It's very flawed. I totally agree with all of that. I'm not sure I agree with what you're saying there, though. So what I want to know is... Do our readers think what do they agree with you that the interpretation outpaces the story or is Ralph Wood going off of just how much he knows about O'Connor and all the different things all his other all his, all her other work and his scholar scholarship of her does the story itself as a standalone work do what Ralph Wood suggests or is it not reaching that like Tim suggests so that's I actually want to stop there it is cruel we did not talk about no, everything we could great. but we're going that's on an great. hour and 15 minutes and I think that would be a great conversation starter. And then, of course, if we'll take at least one question on this story uh, next week on the Q&A episode. Does that sound good, Angelina? Sounds good. So, uh, 
if if you're listening and you're like, you guys did not solve any problems for us, <laughs> it is true. We did not, and we are relying on you to solve problems for us. Um. So, but anyway, uh, this has been a great time uh, discussing, conversating. I know people like it when I use that word, conversating. Conversating about yeah, about O'Connor. Um, nine episodes. Um, I think. Um, I think we had. I think we were able to really dive in deep, talk about a lot of great stuff. Um, and hopefully, people like O'Connor more now than they did when we started, and you know, even a few weeks ago. Um, I really enjoyed going through all these stories again. Some of which I've read, you know, five or six times. So. Um, hopefully it, this show has motivated people to want to go back at some point later on to read, to get to read her again. Um, any final thoughts from either of you? None from uh, me. No, I don't. I echo everything you were saying. Well, thanks to Roman Rhodes, of course, for sponsoring. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave comments, all that good stuff that we talk about. Um, be sure to leave a question for us. Um, I'm going to go save my wife from a snake, which is in our house. I just got the call, so I should probably go do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll just we'll call it a day. So for, uh, Ange- <laughs> for, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us and here. And for the snake. And for the snake and uh, for my wife. Uh, I'm, I'm David Curran saying farewell here on the Cersei Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.